Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Today we're talking with Dr. David Scarbeck, author of the book, The Puzzle of the Prison Order, Why Life Behind Bars Varies Around the World. And I am Deidre Tyler. Hello. How are you doing today, Dr. Scarbeck? Oh, I'm doing very well. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to being in conversation with you. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Sure. I'm uh, an economist by training, uh, so I have a PhD in economics, and I've been interested in uh, problems with the criminal justice system and mass incarceration in the United States uh, since I was an undergraduate uh, student. When I was studying for a PhD in economics, I became very interested in understanding um, how institutions structure interactions and cause them to either be beneficial for people or sort of harmful or negative for them. And I felt like in order to better understand mass incarceration, I wanted to look at what are, what are, what are just like going beyond the numbers? What, what's the informal life in prison like? And so it just started with some papers in grad school that led to my first book, The Social Order of the Underworld, which uh, focused on California. And in that book, I tried to provide an explanation for why, despite the fact that prison gangs are incredibly important in the prison system today, that they didn't exist at all for more than 100 years in the California prison system. So the puzzle of that book is, if gangs are so important today, why didn't they exist for so long? Uh, This new book um, is an attempt to go beyond the state of California, to grapple with and try to understand the wide variation in informal life in prisons, and try to sketch out what might be some reasons to explain uh, those great differences. Great. Well, tell us something about the differences, the different social orders that you found uh, visiting and examining the various structures. So So I look at two main ways in which prisons um, differ uh, when we look across different countries, different prison systems. The first is to what degree prisoners themselves exert an important influence on the everyday life of prisons, both on prisoners and um, people working in prison. So in some places, they work together with uh, great effectiveness to um, dictate and sometimes dominate the everyday life of prisons. But in other places, prisoners don't act collectively. They don't act with unity to have that big of an influence. Instead, officials are the dominant um, force governing the prison. The second criteria that I look at in some of these prisons is is exactly that question about hierarchy and organization. So sometimes when prisoners um, do provide governance very effectively, they do so in very informal ways. They rely on um, norms and gossip and ostracism in order to enforce social norms. In other places, like I mentioned, they invest in highly organized, sometimes racially segregated gangs to produce order. So those are the two main ways, the two margins on which I look at the informal life of prisons. And I try to sort of um, better understand the variation and, and offer some explanations for why it looks so different. Great. Can you tell the audience a little bit more about um, the gangs and social order in the prisons? Sure. So um, in California today, uh, for instance, um, gangs operate in what uh, political scientists would often call a community responsibility system. And in such a system, every member of that community, of the prison, has to affiliate with some group. The gangs are the most important such groups. And within those gangs, within those groups, 
they exert a tremendous pressure amongst their own members to regulate and govern their members' interactions with members of other groups. These are, uh, as I mentioned, cut along racial and ethnic lines, and they have a dominant influence on you know, just about every aspect of a prisoner's uh, day-to-day affairs. Likewise, when we look to Latin American prisons, prison officials there provide incredibly few resources. Um, the effectiveness of their administration is very low. It's, it's fairly incompetent. And the governance of uh, social and economic affairs in prison is often um, you know, very limited or, or, or lacks, absent entirely. So in many Latin American prisons, when prison officials don't govern, don't provide access to resources, then prisoner groups, often along sort of prison gang lines or with prison gang identities, they emerge to fill this gap in governance to help gain access to resources because the state through the prison has left them impoverished. Well, why should we care about prison conditions? I think it's uh, there's many reasons why we should care. The first is that um, on, on normative grounds, we don't send people to prisons to be punished. We send them there as punishment. And there's some basic respect for human rights, um, I think, is a part of our uh, use of prisons to hold people accountable for crimes against society. Uh, the second reason is that there's a lot of people in prison. Currently, there's about 10 and a half million people in prisons around the world. Of course, uh, looking over time, many, many million more people will be incarcerated. So I think we should care um, very much about the scope to which their daily um, lives are subject to the whims of say, organized prison gangs or um, tyrannical prison staff. Uh, Finally, most people who are in prison are going to be released at some point. In the United States, more than 90% of people who are incarcerated uh, will be released back on on the street. They will live in our communities. And simply as a practical matter, we should care about their existence because they're going to return to us. So if they've been educated, if they've been taught uh, vocational skills, if they've been enhanced in ways, that's good for us when they come back. By contrast, if they've been subject to abuse, if they've joined gangs, um, if they've gotten tattoos in prominent places that are going to reduce future economic opportunities, all of these things are costs that society is going to bear once those people are released. So I think it's crucial that we understand the dynamics and the extent to which prisoners themselves play a prominent role in governing prisons. Yes, you're you're talking about the fact that they will be released one day. Tell us more about the levels of social control that the prisoners have. You talked about that in your book. And I was wondering, how is that connected with when they are out from the prison? Do they still have these lower levels of social control? Yeah. So, you know, in my first book, I discuss um, prison gangs in California. And one of the most powerful prison gangs in California is called the Mexican Mafia. And because people dealing drugs on the street very reasonably anticipate being incarcerated at some point in the future, then that means that the Mexican Mafia, with the credible threat to harm those people when incarcerated in the future, can very credibly make threats. And in doing so, they extract resources they call them drug taxes or gang taxes on drug dealing out in the community by street gangs. So because of their control within the prison system, they can very much uh, project uh, control outside of the prison. So prisons have very porous walls 
the influence of you know potentially negative actors or violent actors in the prison has come to play a government-like role for street gangs in many neighborhoods throughout uh, Southern California and Northern California. That's another reason, in fact, that we should care about what's going on in prison is that even while they're incarcerated, they can literally regulate and govern uh, drug dealing and criminal activity uh, while it's still incarcerated. That's really interesting. You talked about the correct code. Can you explain to the audience what is meant by the correct code? Yes, the convict code is uh, it's an informal set of norms that um, exists in many prisons. In California, um, in early ethnographies of the prison system in the 1940s, 50s, and, and in the 1960s, um, researchers, as well as people working and living in prisons, report the sort of system of social norms that determine whether a prisoner was a convict in good standing or was sort of lower in standing. The, the code itself um, had, a, had a few basic tenets. You know, don't inform on other prisoners. Don't steal from other prisoners. Pay back debts. Don't be weak. Don't whine. And to the extent that prisoners lived up to this code, they would have um, friends, they would have support from their peers, they would have access to more resources. But for prisoners who consistently violated these norms, no one wanted to associate with them. That means they had less protection from, by peers and less access to resources. And so this, this informal system, this convict code, it existed in California and was very important in the earlier period. We also see it in operation in, in other prisons. In women's prisons today, the convict code uh, is an important source of order amongst uh, female prisoners. Likewise, in men's prisons in England and Wales and in Nordic prisons, we see similar themes with similar content emerging. And those tend to be the primary ways in which uh, social order and social control is established by prisoners is the circulation of a set of norms, monitoring for violations of it, and then individuals punishing people for those deviations. So in these systems, a person's individual reputation is incredibly precious. It's incredibly important because it dictates your relationship to the society of prisoners more generally, uh, and then therefore your access to resources, uh, safety, and other amenities. Now, on the opposite, Ian, you talked about prisons that didn't have any governance at all. You know, uh, the Bolivian prison. Tell us about the difference between the Bolivian prison system, Nordic, and Andersonville. So across Latin America, in general, prison officials provide few resources, incompetent administration, and low-quality governance institutions. And because of that, there's a gap in governance that prisoners themselves often spend time, energy, and resources to try to fill. And in the absence of state governance, they produce governance themselves. I look at a very extreme example of this in the book, a Bolivian prison. This prison in, internally has no guard presence. Prison officials provide uh, almost no access. They provide almost no resources. They do not enter physically into the environment. They control the perimeter of the facility, so who gets in and who can get out. Uh, but other than that, they provide essentially nothing. They provide access to water and electricity, but prisoners are expected to pay a prorated share um, based on how long they were incarcerated when they're leaving from the prison. So in their place, prisoners have invested in governance institutions in a variety of different ways. Um, there are housing sections, about seven or eight housing sections, 
in order to gain access to live in a housing section, prisoners themselves have to purchase or rent a cell. They can make modifications at these facilities. They can buy multiple uh, uh, rooms. They can, they can um, in, include in them different amenities, refrigerators, microwaves, different cooking utensils. And within each housing section, there's a little political organization that keeps track of who owns which property, when it was purchased, for how much. They invest in recreational activities or sports leagues. Um, in addition to that, because prison officials are not present and controlling the interior of the prison, um, there's actually a flourishing sort of market economy in operation within the prison. For a small bribe to guards, people on the outside can enter the facility. Friends and family bring in a large number of resources, and prisoners have jobs. They open businesses. They uh, often uh, create little cafes and restaurants because prison officials are not providing the quantity and the quality of food uh, that prisoners want. So there's a market for food among many other um, industries within the prison. Um, finally, you know what's, again, unique relative from a sort of American or Western perspective, uh, but is quite common in Latin America, is that in, in, in Bolivia, prisoners are allowed to let their spouses and children come live with them in the prison. Now, legally, this is only supposed to apply for kids who are aged eight or younger. But again, in practice, um, that, that limit has never been enforced. So depending on the time of year, there's anywhere from 200 to 400 children living with incarcerated parents in this Bolivian prison. And so in response to the need to care for these kids, um, prisoners have created a uh, prisoner's uh, uh, a, a Children's Association, where they, again, organize educational activities and cultural activities for the kids, but they also create rules that they expect other prisoners, those without families, to abide by. And one of the ones that was stressed to me repeatedly of its importance is there's no fighting allowed in the presence of children. If people are fighting and that kids become present, they have to stop. And they can continue once the children are gone, but that's a sort of an important role that... Um, other prisoners are expected to, and I'm told, uh, do in fact comply with. So there's a sort of market economy, there's this little political organization, there's, there's sort of hints of civil society that are, are in, in a way flourishing. I don't want to be a romantic about the difficult lives that people in this prison are living, but the response from state absence isn't passive acceptance. It's entrepreneurial, it's reactive, it's active, it's, it's, um, it's enhancing, it's promoting, it's it's people who are in a very difficult situation responding fairly effectively to the deprivations um, of prison officials. So that's one sort of far extreme. Um, I contrast those institutions, the importance of informal institutions in Bolivia, with uh, the, the complete other end of the spectrum, different Nordic prisons. So I look at um, ethnographies of the informal life of prisons in Norway. And what we see across the Nordic region is wildly different performance by prison officials. They have very small prisons that are uh, far safer. They provide a substantial number of resources. Um, prison officers, um, correctional officers, uh, are far more extensively trained. There's a lot more of them. There's about one prison staff member for every prisoner in Nordic prisons. There's no overcrowding in the prison system. So the administration of the daily activities is, is quite effective. And prison officials themselves govern social and economic life amongst prisoners in a very high quality and effective way. When we look then to the informal life of prisons, uh, we don't see prisoners investing in self-governance institutions like we see across Latin America. 
And so in the book, I argue that they have very little reason to spend their time and their energy and their resources to invest in institutions because the state provides it so effectively already. Um, why, why replicate or reproduce governance institutions when the state, for the most part, has already met all of the needs that prisoners have for those things? So those are two very extreme examples that I think identify um, the broader logic or understanding about how these mechanisms actually come into operation and why it is that prisoners spend so much time in some places and so little in others in creating self-governance institutions. Okay, you talked about uh, women in the prison, and you said they created a family type. Explain a little bit more about the families that they created in the prison system. Sure. The women's prisons in California are you know, very surprisingly to me um, in interesting in their lack of change. So in California men's prisons, the convict code was the preeminent governance institution for more than 100 years. In the last 30, it's been gangs. In women's prisons, when we go back and look at prison ethnographies of women's prisons from the 1950s, in the 60s, in the 80s, in the 90s, in the 2000s, across many decades of change where culture has changed, the philosophy of corrections has changed, so much has changed since the 1950s, and yet the informal ways that women organize amongst themselves have not changed very much. They still abide by a convict code. Their social organization is not typically racially segregated. There are no organized prison gangs in women, women's prisons. Um, the only thing that comes close to some social organization of a more um, centralized nature is that women, since the 1950s, have sometimes formed or joined what they call play families. So in social science, you know, we call them sort of fictive kinships. And these are institutions that provide protection, they provide emotional support, they provide access to resources, um, but they differ from gangs in a lot of ways. Um, joining the gangs is not a promise that you'll be a member for life. People often join families and then leave them. Um, they're not very centralized and hierarchical. Unlike gangs, which have clear lines delimiting membership, members in prison families, um, it, it's just like any family tree, right? There are kids, there are grandparents, there are sisters and cousins and nieces and nephews. And so there are networks that provide you know, security, support, and resources. Um, many women never join a, a family. Uh, most women are not a part of a family actively for their entire period uh, of incarceration. Um, but those seem to be, and not just in California, sort of anecdotally, um, we see women's prisons often reproducing these sort of uh, traditional nuclear families in the form of, of fictive kinships. Well, could you say that the gay and transgender dorm have similarities with the female units? Yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap there. So in the book, I discuss this particular um, housing unit in the Los Angeles County Jail that was created specifically to hold um, gay and transgender prisoners. Now, it, it's a bit of a controversial uh, facility. It, it was created initially out of the threat of a lawsuit from the ACLU. Um, it's controversial because you, a prisoner cannot simply opt into being housed there. Prison officials fear that if anyone can go to the gay and transgender unit, 
then the victimization that happened at appalling rates in the general population might be reproduced in those specific units. So there's an interview during the process of intake into the facility where, although not currently, historically, it's been two uh, white men who are in charge of that facility. And they ask a series of probing questions about uh, the lifestyle that someone has lived. They ask about whether people have gone to particular gay bars in West Los Angeles, ask them about uh, how much the, the, the fee to get in is, ask them what the interior looks like. They, they have even called um, in- incarcerated people's family members to sort of apparently sensitively, but to try to understand or try to get a sense for uh, whether the particular person has been living a gay and transgender lifestyle. Now, this is deeply problematic in a lot of ways. It has a, a tremendous number of assumptions about um, the, uh, the lifestyle that's not universally lived in the gay and transgender community. Uh, but as a result of that controversial selection process, it means that the people who are housed in the gay and transgender unit are, first of all, one, they're relatively small, so they're easier to govern, and informal norms are very powerful in smaller communities relative to big ones. Ostracism hurts more when everyone ostracizes you and there's not some other group of people that you can interact with. Um, The community is also very similar in certain characteristics. Because of this controversial selection process, prisoners um, come from similar neighborhoods. Many of them know each other before incarceration. They've faced many of the same challenges and prejudices in life. They've been a part of similar communities. And so in all of these ways, we might think that sort of culturally, or uh, there's this term social distance that had a sort of different academic meaning prior to the pandemic, but um, this, the ways in which people engage with the world, understand the world, have values, um, display those values is far more similar than they would be from just randomly drawing people from the general population of the prison. And so in those ways, there's more agreement about what is acceptable behavior, what constitutes a deviation from acceptable behavior, and, and how should we punish um, you know, bad behavior, violations of social norms. Um, so as, as you note, in the gay and transgender unit, there is a lot of pairing. Uh, there are some families that do form in the gay and transgender unit. Um, again, there are no gangs in the small, uh, relatively homogenous um, you know, housing units. Um, but they, 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 like women's prisons, prisoners don't just have to um, join families. They only do so when they view it Uh, to be beneficial for themselves. And so I think the message really is that when you have small prison systems, when you have a lot of cultural homogeneity, when you have a lot of people who see the world in the same way, they can more effectively rely on informal institutions like the convict code or loose organizations like, you know, play families. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time and you've given us some great information. I enjoyed our conversation, but I want to ask you, What's your next project? What are you working on now? Uh, Well, that's a good question. I've got a few different papers that are underway. I guess the main theme of them is better understanding extrajudicial violence and police violence in Latin America. So we've been doing a series of survey experiments with respondents in Brazil to try to understand when they think it's acceptable to engage in lynchings. Brazil today is experiencing lynchings at perhaps the highest volume that we have recorded. And so we want to understand when do, when do people think that lynchings are more acceptable? Can we find prompts that reduce their support for lynching? And what we found essentially is that respondents don't believe that state-based criminal justice institutions 
are an effective response to serious uh, crime. In the face of that, we then detect um, something that has elements of an honor culture, where especially serious or heinous crimes, forcible rape and murder, for example, people believe that it's right for the family or the victim to lynch the alleged perpetrator. And they don't believe that it's uh, appropriate for the state to do so. This honor culture also emerges in a second way, which is that they, it conforms to the, the lex talionis. This is the ancient principle of an eye for an eye. And so our respondents are, are sort of open to explaining that if one person kills someone else, that family has the right to take that perpetrator's life. So it's an investigation, uh, just the start of an investigation to understand violence and social order uh, in Latin America. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Thank you. Thank you so much.